0: welcome to the gut connection with brian jerby md where we discuss the connection that gastrointestinal health has with all of health we review the latest research and interview the greatest minds in this rapidly advancing field of gut health and integrative functional medicine please keep in mind that this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for care from a licensed medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that this does not constitute medical advice or other medical services. If you would like more information about Dr. Jerby and the type of medical care that he provides, please visit drjerby.com. That's D-R-J-E-R-B-Y.com. Now, let's get to this episode of The Gut Connection. Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Gut Connection. I'm Brian Jervie, your host, and this is a place where we talk about all kinds of health problems that are connected to the gut. And uh, I'm really glad that you're here with us today because it is almost Christmas Eve and it's time to reflect a little bit on... Some of the things that might be pertinent to our discussion today. And if you know anything about the Christmas story, um, maybe when you were a kid, you had a nativity set or whatever. But you know that uh, wise men, philosophers from the East came bearing gifts for the newborn baby Jesus. And those gifts were gold. Frankincense and myrrh, and when we think about that, we kind of wonder, well, why did they bring those things? Um, and of course, you know, the gift of gold is uh, is a gift that's appropriate for a king, and and that goes kind of without saying. But what about frankincense? What about myrrh? Well, let's talk about myrrh first. Myrrh, you know, is a fragrant spice that, um, is very, uh, readily available in the Near East and it can be used as an incense for sure. Um, but in the ancient world, it, it probably had a wider usage as a fragrance or an anointing oil and, um. Uh, most notable with regard to the life of Jesus, myrrh was a key ingredient in the mixture of spices that were used to prepare bodies for burial, and you can find that in the New Testament. Maybe the wise men intended this gift as an indication of of what was to come, and uh, that Jesus would die um, for his people, but just like the the um, uh, gift of of uh, gold, you would think that um, it was probably had something to do with uh, him being the the king as well. So, anyway, those are just some reflections on the first two. But I want to focus today on the gift of frankincense. Now, frankincense is an aromatic gum resin that's still widely used in the Middle East and in Africa. And, um, you can burn it as an incense and it has a strong and very pleasant and beautiful aroma. And, um, it, was back in the ancient times, it was very expensive, and uh, normal, you know, regular folks like you and I um, couldn't use it as, you know, a common uh, household air freshener sort of thing. Um, And back in those times, the burning of frankincense was, was mostly used with ceremonial worship, and in this way, the inclusion of frankincense may have indicated that the wise men understood that the prophecy of the Old Testament was being fulfilled um, in the coming of Jesus as the newborn king. Well, we're not going to talk about that today. We're actually going to talk about the fact that we still use frankincense and I use it in my practice all the time not as an incense, not as a, um, you know, uh, uh, something that we would apply or give to, um, kings or deity or anything like that, but we use it medicinally. And, um, what we use is, uh, what's better known as Indian frankincense. And maybe the, maybe you know it. As boswellia, and boswellia has many uses, um, and uh, it's really exciting to see that more and more studies are being done with boswellia, um, especially in the area of biofilms. Now, biofilms are are really Um, prevalent and I guess the best example of a biofilm is plaque on your teeth and uh, you know we can brush that away and it comes right back Um, so we keep brushing but biofilms elsewhere in the body are difficult to control because we can't get a toothbrush to most most of these places okay so um, you know, all kinds of organisms can, can develop biofilms, and the significance of this is that um, biofilms can make the organism that makes it, can is kind of like a matrix that it hides in, and it's difficult for antibiotics, antifungals, or whatever to get into that matrix and get to that organism and zap it. And um, that's why uh, problems occur with artificially uh, or artificial um, substances that are implanted in the body. And you know, maybe one of the best examples of this is that I have a patient who is very ill. Um, she is one sick young lady. And she has a long-term indwelling um, IV catheter that kind of goes up her arm. It's a pick line for those of you who um, know what that is. But it is placed in her arm, and it goes um, up the big vein in the arm and um, through the big vein in the chest and kind of sits in the vena cava above the level of the heart. Well that's a that's a foreign object sitting in a big blood vessel. Well, guess what? Uh that foreign object doesn't have an immune system. And therefore, any organisms that might be floating around in the body that the immune system normally would zap, would normally take care of, these guys kind of collect on this um this artificial or, um, this foreign material. It's not tissue. It's not self. Um, and they grow and they develop a biofilm. And recently this young woman had, became very ill, became septic, um, high fever, um, high heart rate, low blood pressure, you know, the whole nine yards rushed her to the emergency department, admitted her to the intensive care unit, and the first thing that you have to do in that case is get out the line because that's the only way to disrupt that biofilm. Now, just getting out the out the line, taking out the line, is not the only treatment. You know, she required antibiotics and all those kind of things. But you can't, you can't treat. Well, let me back up. No amount of antibiotics are going to penetrate that biofilm you've got to disrupt it by taking out the the foreign object and in this case it was the um it was the indwelling iv line well fortunately you'll be happy to know that she survived and i saw her in the office the other day and um um, she's thriving once again but anyway that's just another example of a biofilm Um, And, you know, some chronic infections, maybe you have a joint replacement, like a hip or a knee. Um, Some of those have become chronically infected and they are also very difficult to um, get rid of because it's a foreign object and, you know, you, you can develop a biofilm you know, in in the foreign material. Um, so the whole point of this is to let you know that biofilms do occur in uh in the body and very commonly they occur. And the problem is that they are often ignored or maybe in some cases people don't even know about them. Practitioners don't even know about them. And they go, you know, untreated. They go um, unchecked or undisrupted. Well, that's what we see a lot of when it comes to yeast. And we see a lot of gut problems. And a lot of gut problems have a component. It's not necessarily the only component thing that's causing the gut problem but it's a piece in the puzzle but one big piece in the puzzle many times is yeast and yeast is incredibly good at forming biofilms so anytime i get a stool test and i see yeast on the results no matter um what form that's in so the the most uh stool tests that i get are uh they show both the um, culture results did any yeast grow out from a culture of the stool sample and also a stain a microscopic stain um that can show yeast under the microscope so when I see a bunch of yeast under the microscope or when I see yeast growing in a culture, and I don't care if the lab counts it as, as excessive or not, whenever I see yeast growing, I think that that could be part of the problem. And more and more studies are showing the importance of yeast in chronic diseases. I just read an article uh, published in 2023 this year about how in non-alcoholic hepatic steatosis or that's just uh, it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is what what it boils down to Um, the the people that have um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease have a different signature of yeast in their gut. And the researchers are postulating that the yeast in the gut is affecting the metabolism, which then drives the fatty liver disease. And if you know anything about fatty liver disease, you know that it's rampant, as a metabolic disorder in our society today. And studies have shown that, yes, it definitely does relate to the microbiome. And, of course, part of the microbiome is made up of yeast. It's not a huge part, but it's still a part. So uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is probably driven to some extent by yeast. And when I'm saying yeast, I don't mean just candida. Now, candida is one that almost everybody's heard of, but there are other kinds of yeast as well. And the problem is, is that the treatments that we have for yeast, the yeast are becoming resistant to them, just like with antibiotics and bacteria, the bacteria becoming more resistant. We don't know what we're going to do. Um, you know, because these, these bacteria are getting stronger and stronger against our antibiotics and we're getting less and less treatment options. Well, the yeast are doing the same thing. There are more and more reports of yeast that are resistant to fluconazole um, or any of those type of antifungal medications. Um, you'll probably know that best as diflucan. Anyway... These yeast are a problem with our dysbiotic guts and it is driving some of our diseases. Cancer is another one. Cancer is, be, uh, is becoming uh, one of those ones that more and more studies are done to see what role yeast plays in the development and the growth of cancer. And You know, you don't know unless you look for it. But when you when they started looking for it, they found out, oh, man, uh, there is an association between the development and the growth of cancer cells and yeast, especially in the gut. So that's on the horizon as well. And then uh, I'll just mention this also that there are more and more studies about um, the interaction of yeast with the immune system, especially as a kid. And if a kid develops the wrong response to yeast organisms in the gut, you know, um, when the immune system is developing, and it, it could be other times too, I don't want to just limit it, to kids, but that's the research that's available right now. But that can influence the development of autoimmunity. And of course, if you are a person that has Crohn's disease or um, knows about Crohn's disease or knows someone with Crohn's disease, then you know that there are a number of antibodies to yeast that um, are markers for the development of Crohn's disease. And so more and more linkages, more and more um, evidence is coming out that yeast in the gut uh, can play a big role in chronic diseases. And of course, you know, with functional medicine, what we do is we are looking for the root cause, the root cause of things. And, um, you know, we don't want to just find out, oh man, you've got, um, uh, autoimmune disease. Well, you know, that had to develop over time and gradually the immune system was becoming more and more reactive to whatever it was. And then finally it reached the level of what conventional medicine would, uh, consider an actual diagnosis of an autoimmune disease. Well, why didn't we intervene long ago when this was developing so that it didn't get to the point, it didn't get bad enough to the point that it could be diagnosed as an autoimmune disease? So we think that autoimmunity starts long before the diagnosis and, um, you know, it's a gradually growing problem and if you see some of the abnormalities early before it reaches the level of a quote-unquote diagnosis, then if you can reverse it, the time to reverse it is well before it becomes a diagnosis. The problem with conventional medicine is that they're not going to do anything about anything until it's an actual diagnosis. Well, we are in the business of Intervening before something turns into an actual diagnosis because we want to treat the root cause and turn that around before it gets bad enough. For instance, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, for one, Uh, there are signs of developing Hashimoto's uh, long before it reaches the level of a conventional medicine diagnosis. I'm putting air quotes up with my fingers. Anyway, um we there's good studies and good clinical experience that we can intervene early on and reverse autoimmunity before it turns into actual Hashimoto's. So, uh the linkage with the gut is strong with Hashimoto's and the linkage with the gut is quite strong with other autoimmune diseases as well. So, um, so, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cancer, autoimmunity, and just plain old gut dysbiosis. And, um, that can cause inflammation that can lead to, um, chronic medical problems. And indeed, bacterial overgrowth is part of that and undergrowth imbalances, but also part of it is because of the doggone yeast. And so we can't discount that. Um, because in my experience, yeast is a whole lot harder to get rid of than a bacterial overgrowth. Um, and, uh, so there's lots of studies that are coming out, thankfully, that are starting to awaken, um, folks to the dangers of having too much yeast in your gut well how does that relate to boswellia (laughs) you're probably thinking he is he is yammering on here and he started out talking about gold frankincense and myrrh and then talked a little bit about boswellia and now he's off talking about yeast well here we go um i've got a study in my hand right now that was published in 2022 it's um it's out of um let's see it is out of europe and what they did was they theorized or they postulated that boswellia um, had anti-biofilm activity and that's how it was effective against yeast. And so they did a study. And indeed, they found that Boswellia um, had activity against the yeast as well as their biofilm. And so if you can disrupt the biofilm, then it re- it'll release or expose these dog on yeast organisms and make them susceptible to the treatment. Now, could that be one of the reasons that a lot of these pharmaceutical antifungal medications are becoming less effective because they're not able to disrupt biofilms? Possibly. And they postulate that Boswellia could be used to... Uh, in conjunction with pharmaceutical agents, um, to enhance or be adjunctive, um, treatment for, for, um, yeast and yeast biofilm. And so this is exciting stuff because we already know that Boswellia is safe. Um, and that bio uh, Boswellia is effective. Not only do we have clinical proof of that in our own practice, but there are tons of studies. And on top of that, as you might know from the biblical account, Boswellia has been used for thousands of years. And so the use of Boswellia as a medicinal agent is is well-documented historically, too. So you got Thousands of years of historical data that says, hey, this works. And, it, you know, Boswellia has been used um, for all kinds of things, not the least of which is arthritis. Um, I use it um, for ulcerative colitis sometimes, Crohn's disease, um, asthma. You know, it has a lot of anti-inflammatory activity. Um, but we've got all this data that uh, it works um, not only in my personal experience, but again, thousands of years of, of, um, of Eastern, uh, Eastern medicinal use, um, uh, as well as India and as well as the Middle East. So, um, a lot of different cultures use this and proved it over time. And, um, one of the cool things is that, um, New pharmacologic studies have um, shown that it also helps regulate, Boswellia also helps regulate the immune system. It inhibits certain cytokines, you know, you've heard of cytokines in in the face of COVID, um, those inflammatory uh, molecules that are produced in the body. It has antioxidant properties. It can help protect the liver as you know, uh, we already showed that. It can help lower blood sugar, um, believe it or not, and triglycerides as well. And um, in some cases, they're even using it in Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, if you see those many, that many uses, you start to think, oh, that just sounds like snake oil. You know, it's good for everything. But when you think about it, Chronic diseases, if you know anything about chronic diseases and 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 diseases that plague our society, most of them are related to inflammation of some, some type, okay? So if you got something that doesn't have a lot of side effects or none, I haven't had anybody with any side effects to Boswellia yet. Um, I'm sure there will be somebody, but low side effects, high efficacy against um, inflammation. Well, if a lot of diseases are related to inflammation, then one very effective anti inflammatory agent or, or, um, or medicine could affect all kinds of diseases that are related to inflammation. So it makes sense, and the studies are proving it as well. So it's not one of those snake oil. Um, situations where somebody's just out trying to um, say that this one thing is good for everything. Um, we have data, historical laboratory and clinical data that shows that it is effective in a lot of different areas Now it's not the only thing that people need, but it can be a very effective part of a comprehensive treatment of Many different uh uh diseases or health issues, so in conclusion, Boswellia serrata is very effective against many different things. We use it a lot in our practice um uh arthritis colitis um crohns we even use it for respiratory disorders in some cases. Anyway, it it's also known as Indian frankincense, and during this Christmas season, I thought it would be interesting to um, look at something that has been used for thousands of years, and is even it even has a significant place in the in the Christmas story, the biblical account of um, Jesus being born on this earth in Bethlehem as a baby and being brought a, some form of Boswellia, um, to, um, to him, to give to him and honor him as uh, King and savior of the world. And so really exciting stuff that we can use Boswellia even today, even now. Um, I prescribed it this week, and I'm very optimistic that it's going to help this particular person. But anyway, if you have a chronic inflammatory process um, and you, you want to use Boswellia, well, make sure that you check with your practitioner first. But maybe your practitioner doesn't know a lot about Boswellia. Well, you can you can do a PubMed search and just type in Boswellia B-O-S-W-E-L-L-I-A, and you will be surprised at the number of studies that are being published about this ancient herb still being used and, and still finding additional uses, and not only is it still being used, and we have the historical data to prove it's effective, now scientists are taking it to the lab and taking it to Clinical studies and proving the mechanism that it, um, at which level it works. So this is really exciting times for me as we see these things that the good Lord made. Um, he's so much wiser than we are, or even a pharmaceutical company, and it has all these applications to these different things. I'm just hope and pray that more and more studies are done and more and more data is out there because so many people could benefit from Indian frankincense, also known as Boswellia. So with that, I am going to leave you um, in in the holiday cheer and I hope and pray that you have a blessed Christmas and a happy new year and i hope to talk to you again soon probably um in not until 2024 cuz it's just around the corner but until then best wishes and god bless you bye bye and that ends this episode of the gut connection thanks so much for joining us and we'll look forward to having you back for our next episode where we'll discuss more gut related topics and interview leaders in this rapidly advancing field if you would like more information, please visit us at drjerby.com. That's D-R-J-E-R-B-Y dot Until next time, take care and may God bless you.